Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Margaret of Anjou with you. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. And today we are reviewing Margaret of Anjou, Queen Consort to Henry VI. Uh, last time we did her biography, so you can check that out to hear the full story. But first off, quick reminder of her dramatic life and queenship before moving on to the review. Biography! Born in 1430, Margaret was the daughter of the Duke uh, René of Anjou and Isabella of Lorraine. As niece to King Charles VII of France, she was married to King Henry VI of England in 1445 as a union that's supposed to bring peace uh, to the Hundred Years' War. Unfortunately, England soon lost almost all of their French uh, territories. Uh, Margaret in 1443 gave birth to uh, a son, Prince Edward, but unfortunately, just before that, her husband Henry VI suffered a mental breakdown. Yeah. And the ensuing power vacuum exacerbated existing tensions at court, with the Duke of York pushing for more power and influence, resulting in the Wars of the Roses, in which ultimately Margaret came to lead the Lancastrian resistance. York briefly triumphed in 1460, only to be killed in an ambush, but when Margaret failed to take London, York's son was crowned Edward IV, and then defeated the Lancastrians in the Battle of Towton in 1461. Mm. Uh, This forced Margaret and her family into exile, but after years of exile in Scotland and France, where she tries to find international allies, she was forced to work with her old enemy, the Earl of Warwick, who restored Henry VI to the throne in 1470. Uh, Margaret and Prince Edward returned to England in 1471, only to find out that on that very day, Warwick has been killed in battle by Edward IV. Uh, Margaret tries to make it to a loyal army in Wales to uh, boost her forces, but Edward catches her at Tewkesbury and destroys her army in the ensuing battle, killing her son, Prince Edward, and then when they return to London... Henry VI as well, with Margaret just a prisoner. Ultimately, Margaret is uh, no longer a threat, so she's allowed to sort of live with a friend mm. uh, for a few years until she is uh, returned to France, uh, and then sadly, really, dies penniless and forgotten in 1482, age of 52. Anyway, it was a dramatic, ultimately a tragic life story. Mm. But how will she fare when we review her? Battleliness! So, for the consorts, we are looking for evidence of agency, independence of action. Can you list the times that she didn't have an influence on things? (laughs) Well, exactly. Uh, She emerges from the birth of her first child and the trauma of her husband's insanity, Mm. which, of course, at that point, she doesn't know he's ever going to recover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, To suddenly announce herself in the political scene when she put forward a bid to be recognised as the regent for the country. Yeah. But it seemed a reasonable thing. It was just the power imbalance below her. Seems a reasonable thing, but just in purely in terms of agency, independence mm. of action. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. She's been doing nothing. She's just given birth. Her husband's mad. And she's like, hey, you know what? Why don't I run the country? Yeah. Uh, from the first Battle of St. Albans in 1455 to the Battle of Towton in 1461, she was effectively the ruler, albeit mm. divided, of England. Because mm. Henry VI is, although he comes out of his... Uh, his madness, as it's called, he's he's not really 
yeah. able to fully rule properly. So she is ruling in his name. I mean, he, he doesn't have what we're ru- judging her. Indeed, he doesn't have much yeah, agency. I mean, it really yeah. is a gender swap in lots of yeah. ways uh, between the two of them. Um, and then after Edward IV's accession in 1461, Margaret is the leader of the Lancastrian forces in exile. She's the driving force for the efforts to have her husband restored um, until her final defeat at Tewkesbury in 1471. So she is, therefore, one of the central and leading figures in the Wars of the Roses for 16 years. It's brilliant, isn't it? Uh, from 1456 in particular, we see contemporaries remarking on how powerful Margaret was. So uh, in February of that year, John Bocking wrote that the Queen is a great and strong-laboured woman, for she spareth no pain to sue her things to an intent and conclusion to her power. Uh, and in 1459, the English Chronicle wrote that the Queen, with such as were of her affinity, ruled the realm as she liked, gathering riches innumerable. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't wouldn't even be remarked upon if she was a fella. She's doing it. Brilliant. And it was notable that uh, when she marched on London in 1461, only to find the city gates closed, the deputation that was sent to negotiate with her was led by three women, all of sort of Lancastrian sympathies. Really? So that clearly indicates that it was very clear that Margaret was the lead person who needed to be negotiated with. Yeah, and all of these men are going to... Uh, deliver on what what these women agree mm. whoa that's cool right i don't know what that is but it's a rex first <laughs> um although she loses power as queen in 1461 her tenacious spirit saw her successfully strike alliances with scotland and france that helped to provoke a significant rebellion in northern england yay and uh, the papers of pope Pius ii gave a remarkable report of uh, margaret's entreaties for french support when she went over there the papers of Pope Pius is definitely a nursery rhyme. <laughs> I have often broken their battle line, I the English. Is I've... this the papers of Pope Pius? This is the papers of Pope Pius. <laughs> okay. Right. I'm I... expecting this all to rhyme, by the way. <laughs> I've mowed down ranks far more stubborn than theirs are now. You who once followed a peasant girl now follow a queen. I will either conquer or be conquered with you. Cool. Uh, as you'd expect, uh, the reports were impressed with what they heard all marvelled at such a boldness in a woman, at a man's courage in a woman's breast. <laughs> How and, can this be? And at her reasonable arguments. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I am laughing at him, <laughs> not with him. I want to, Oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> Something that then she would be in trouble for, for having rational arguments, because that's not what a woman should do. Yeah, it's like, it's... I mean, it's it's a man's courage, and yet it does all seem to make sense. It's against nature, sir. This is why she is the devil. Uh, when she allied with her old enemy, Warwick the Kingmaker, it was very much on Margaret's terms, despite lots of pressure from the French king. So she initially refused uh, to have anything to do with him, and then when she does agree, it's only on the proviso that she won't grant her son into Warwick's custody, which is what he wanted, yeah. and she wouldn't come to England until um, it was absolutely safe and she was confident to go. And Warwick wasn't allowed to be regent for Henry VI either. That's going to be her son, Prince Edward. Mm. So she's yeah. allying with this powerful chap, but he's got to meet her conditions. That was very good conditions, right? Unless if she had gone with him. Uh, well, yes, we will. Uh, oh, we're getting on to, okay. we will get on to that. But there's one more thing there, because uh, before they seal the alliance, mm. they have to actually formally meet in person again mm. and that's the first time that they've met since the Love Day Parade in 1458 oh no 12-13 years ago it's like the same occasion they've got to pretend to be friends <laughs> well exactly but initially Margaret does not pretend so she rejected Warwick's overtures to her 
uh, until, despite his excessive pride, he has to bend down on one knee and beg her pardon for all the wrongs that he's done her. Yeah, fair enough. But still, she Warwick is this overmighty chap who doesn't really feel like he even owes kings much of a show yeah. of respect, but he has to bow on one knee for Margaret. Wow, yeah, because he is going against the king by being there, isn't he? He's mm. happy to do that. Although it all ends in tragedy, she enjoys some notable victories along the way. So in 1459, York and his allies are forced into exile and are tainted as traitors. And uh, while she wasn't there at the Battle of Wakefield where York was ambushed and killed, it was nevertheless her troops, her supporters. It was very much seen as the Queen's army. Mm. Uh, and she was quick to take advantage of it. She rushed down from Scotland to have her war council at York and then marched on London, defeated Warwick along the way, the mm. Second Battle of St Albans. From being in exile, she came back and captured three key northeastern castles in England and uh, obviously her alliance with Warwick did result in Henry VI being restored a decade after losing the throne yeah I mean I'm you're preaching to the cry here I can't see that you've got anything on the negative uh, yeah I'm still still on the positive oh <laughs> uh, the historian S.B. Crimes praised her indefatigable courage Mm-hmm. Queen Margaret, whatever her shortcomings may have been, spared herself no efforts, hardships or perils in her heroic desperation to keep her husband's and above all her son's cause alive by every available means. Mm. So as I said, the fact that it's like a decade in exile and all these defeats, she keeps on coming back again a decade and again in and exile? Again. Yeah. When she was in France? So 1461 is when they're first uh, defeated at Towton. 1471 mm. is when she returns. Wow. I mean, she's back and forth, I suppose, because the, she goes to Scotland and then there's the Northern Rebellion, but in terms of... Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Wow. Although never actually physically on the battlefield herself, um, she was close to danger a lot of the time because she's nearby waiting to hear what happens. So in 1458, there's a local legend claiming that Margaret escaped capture after the Battle of Bloor's Field by reversing the shoes of her horse to lay a false trail. Oh, yeah. Uh, after Henry VI was captured at the Battle of Northampton, Margaret bundled her son onto a horse with a bodyguard and then mounted her own horse, and they then just fled off to Wales. Wow. So, you know, when we talk about fleeing to Wales, you may be imagining her, I don't know, like in a carriage and like the whole army. Mm. But no, this is like her, her son and a bodyguard on horseback. God. Charging off. Uh, on her retreat from Scotland in uh, 1462, she was shipwrecked, losing Ooh. her treasure chest, and uh, had to be picked up by a fishing boat and then put ashore at Berwick. No way! And then when retreating from the failed siege of Norham in 1463, she and Edward, uh, her son, Prince Edward, were separated from their troops and were set upon by thieves in the woods. Um, so her jewels were stolen from her person, but she was able to escape and then encountered another thief, but managed to convince him uh, to help them escape to safety. This is amazing. Then when she goes back sort of to France and she's trying to find allies, she wants to go to uh, Burgundy. Uh, and the Duke warns her not to come because it's too dangerous and there are too many Yorkists about. But apparently she replied, I will go and search him out whether it be dangerous to me or not, riding 60 miles through uncertain territory disguised as a peasant to evade capture. She is the business. And then, of course, even after she landed in England in 1471 to learn that Warwick had been killed, she doesn't give up, but determines to make for Wales uh, to get reinforcements and to fight again. Mm. So Lisa Hilton, the historian, argued that there was something magnificent in her refusal to surrender, her clear belief that there was still a chance of victory. Yeah. And uh, Hall's Chronicle reports that Margaret rode among the troops before the ensuing Battle of Tewkesbury to uh, encourage them before then retiring to wait nearby from a safe location. Oh. Well, she doesn't get to be on the battlefield. That's yeah, the other yeah, thing. Yeah. 
can you try and give her any negatives? Well, impressive as it all is, most of these examples do really involve her running away, technically. These are retreats from defeats. So although she achieves great power as queen, she never quite manages to make it official in her own right. So it's always through her husband, through you know, her son. You, you're a Dunkirk defeatist. <laughs> <laughs> and in a funny way, it almost serves to highlight Henry's incapacity to rule. The more powerful Margaret gets, the more clear it is that her husband yeah. isn't actually able to rule. So she's never really able to find a way of properly having her own official, well-established power. Mm because she's got to do it through him, and yet the more that she does it, the less powerful he seems, and thus the power that she's yeah. drawing on is less. It's yeah. She never quite manages to solve that quandary. Um, as she said, as a woman, she is hamstrung by the fact she's not able to lead her soldiers on the battlefield. And perhaps one of the key things for her, unlike like the Empress Matilda uh, during the anarchy in the 12th century, she never really has a consistent, reliable general that she can yeah. trust. So like Matilda had um, Robert... Of Gloucester. Robert of Gloucester, didn't you? <laughs> hey! I'm, only because when uh, you were talking about the Battle of St Albans, I thought I was, there was one point where I was thinking, oh, I think this is where Gloucester gets it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Margaret doesn't have a Robert of Gloucester. She doesn't have like one successful, loyal and dependable general that's there throughout. So she does all of this work around, but then when it comes to the battle... Uh, now, in Margaret's defence with all of these difficulties, she wasn't alone in this period, in this struggle... Um, York and Warwick both ultimately found it impossible to rule without reigning. Yeah. I.e. without being the king, no one's quite able to properly yeah, yeah. use their power. So the Yorkists really only succeed because they found a new king with Edward IV. Mm. And that was what allowed him to establish himself in a way that York never managed. And Margaret, in a weird way, might have been more successful if Henry VI had actually been killed at some point along the way because then she could have been regent for her son, moulded him into a more effective king. It's much easier for her to say, look, I'm the queen mother, I'm going to be in charge, I'm the regent, everyone can agree, this is the next in line. If Henry VI had just been deaded at some point earlier along, um, easier job. Because queen mothers can do more. Mm. People just are all right with that. Yeah. Because it's not her seeking power for herself. Mm. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, he's a pain, isn't he? Because if he'd been dead, then her son would have claimed the throne. Which would have been, uh, like, uncontestable. Mm, or even if it is contestable, it brings a lot more gravitas. Yeah. Uh, we praised her for the breadth of her diplomatic endeavours. Who said she was France, Scotland, she was mm. Burgundy. She's sending letters all over the shop. Mm. Um, but we should also acknowledge that these are broadly unsuccessful. Mm. Most of the time, she doesn't really get much back. Also, Margaret, perhaps not a gifted politician. Mm -hmm. So very good at the strong, forceful leadership, but perhaps the nuances mm. of uh, diplomacy and politics weren't quite her thing. Um, so they're more impressive for spirit than subtlety. Sort of an ignorance of real politique with Margaret. So she made her appeals to various monarchs and dukes, pretty much expecting them to help simply by virtue of being fellow monarchs. Yeah. Without acknowledging that actually they're all pragmatic people and mm. they're mainly motivated by what suits them best rather yeah. than this ideological drive to restore the useless Henry VI. Mm. Uh, so she wrote to Alfonso V of Portugal asking for soldiers and to intervene with his brothers-in-law, the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of Castile. Mm. Despite the fact that in her reduced circumstances she couldn't even actually find out what the name of the King of Portugal was. No. So it's not like she's got this really great relationship and alliance of years past and she's now calling in a favour. 
Similarly, she tried to get the Hanseatic League to uh, invade England. Right. Because they've been struggling with Warwick's piracy in the mm. sea. So she thought, well, maybe this will mean they'll actually launch a land invasion of England. Wow. So she's turning into a fantasist. And when it comes to actual battles, you know, almost all the major battles of the Wars of the Roses were actually Yorkist victories. The first Battle of St Albans, the Battle of Towton, Battle of Barnet, Battle of Tewkesbury. Uh, all see Margaret's troops suffered devastating losses. And while she's not in charge of the poor tactics on the battlefield, there were two crucial moments when she hesitated and missed opportunities for victory. Mm. So one was after York's death at Wakefield when London refused to open her doors, its doors to her because of the pillaging and plundering of the yeah. army that she'd got, she was an unpopular figure. She had this chance where she maybe can assert herself or she could convince them to let her in, but her attempts to uh, convince the city leaders that she's absolutely not going to do any damage, not quite reassuring. The king and queen had no mind to pillage the chief city, but at the same time they did not mean that they would not punish the evildoers. Which evildoers? Well, i.e. people that have supported the Yorkists but oh, equally right. equally if you're in London you're saying well who do you mean by that then? yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some... we just wanted you to say definitely not going to come in and hurt people uh, yeah and it said we've got no mind to pillage the city but we're not going to not punish evildoers yeah right they should have been saying no deaths at all mm. let us in not some deaths details to be sorted out later <laughs> exactly <laughs> Uh, so you can understand why they still weren't keen to open the doors. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, she hesitates. What does she do? Edward's coming. But Edward's kind of coming on a bit of a wing and a prayer because he's behind Margaret and, you know, he's got an army, but he's not in a great position. He's legged it over from Wales, basically. I think if she'd have stood and fought then, maybe, you know, there was more there was more support out there for her later in the in the in this story. Mm. So... She could have had a chance there. And by delaying, Edward then gets into London and is acclaimed as king. Mm. And suddenly then a much Everything changes, bigger yeah. prospect. So the English Chronicle of 1461 saw this as a fatal moment in her campaign. The king and queen turned back from St. Albans to Dunstable. And this was the downfall of King Henry and his queen. For if they had entered London, they would have had all at their mercy. Mm. Mm. There was a... Sliding doors again, isn't it? Mm. It was. It was. So it was the end of her. But it was, she was never getting, coming back from that. Mm. And it, another Rubicon, and he, and that was the moment that he legitimised his. God, it's, it's exciting, isn't it? But there was another moment, of course, because in 1470 Henry VI was briefly restored. But she, as we were going to talk about earlier, she refused to let Warwick take her son Prince Edward to be mm. the figurehead for the invasion. Now, on the one hand, understandable, she doesn't trust him. What's to say Warwick isn't going to go over and just hand Prince Edward to Edward the Force and then that's it. Mm. Lancastrians are done. Mm. On the other hand, it deprived Warwick of legitimacy and it deprived the Lancastrians of a unifying royal figure. That they she should have gone. Well, indeed, or she should have gone. Um, but basically, she didn't want to go or her son to go until she was convinced it was safe. Did she have enough allies in France to leave her son with? Oh, yeah. Well, with the king of France, you could have left him with. But again, she's not fully trusting. She wants to be like, right, Henry mm. VI is definitely king. Edward IV is definitely out. It's safe for me to go. On the one hand, it's understandable. But on the other hand, you needed decisive action. Mm. and this holds Warwick back because he isn't able to form a cohesive government you yeah. don't have that unifying presence 
uh, of Prince Edward. And what's more, it then took Margaret and her son three months to come to England with reinforcements, of course, from mm. France. And while some of this, of course, is due to bad weather, so there were times where she tried but was held back, she was also very cautious. It's not like there wasn't a single day in three months when the weather wasn't good enough for her to come. You know, you've got merchants coming and going every day, mm. you've got armies coming and going, and it seems that Edward IV, basically the first whiff of a chance he has to get back to England, mm. he goes whereas Margaret waits and waits. And of course, it's the very day that she arrives that Warwick is killed in the Battle of Barnet. So if she'd been there two days earlier with more troops... And the message had got through, they might not have, yeah. How would Edward have been able to defeat Warwick and Margaret and this French army? So both in London and then in 1471, two moments where she seems like she's got victory within her grasp, but she hesitates... And it's cautious, whereas Edward IV just sees a chance and takes it. Ah, oh, the lesson for us all. Indeed. But it's, it's an interesting one for battliness, because usually we're not judging queen consorts on all of this sort of stuff. This is actual full-on king and queen regnant battliness. Agency, independence of action, courage, etc. There's loads of it. But we've got the weird situation where it's almost like she and Henry swap and she is actually doing the mm. overarching stuff. Yeah, and he's um, making lace. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be dissuaded from a 10. Ooh. I can't... It's, it's, it's 10. I just feel like so many defeats. And also, I mean, let's, let's be frank, it all ends... I mean, I said there are defeats along the way, but let's be yeah, clear, it, it ends with her son and husband both dead, mm -hmm. and her having a miserable final decade, impoverished and forgotten in France. So, you know, it's, it's absolute and total defeat. It's a loss, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> but we don't usually expect to be judging the Queen Consort on that sort of thing. No, that's, and that's what was at stake all the time. Mm. This was always the chance. Our big hitters in battliness of this series is Isabella of France, who of course overthrew her husband Edward II. Hmm. Technically, she's sort of defeated afterwards, but she's defeated by, by her, her son, son so yeah. it didn't really, it was the natural order of things. I think Eleanor of Aquitaine, I think you gave a 10, I gave a 9.5 on the basis that Eleanor had failed oh, to yeah. overthrow Henry II, whereas Isabella obviously succeeds. So you still gave her a 10. Well, I want to give her whatever she got. <laughs> so I'm going to say 10, but if it goes down, because it's what Eleanor got, mm. that's what it is. I'm going to give Margaret of Anjou nine and a half. Because it is amazing. I mean, in terms of courage, independence, action, all that stuff, it's phenomenal. Incredible spirit, incredible bravery, all that sort of stuff. I just feel that now that that's the game she was playing, I feel like I have to deduct for the fact that she loses so badly in the end. Well, that's fine, but you just have to live with being misogynist. So, <laughs> you know, that's all right. So that's 19 and a half for battliness. Uh, we'll score her for Scandal after a quick break. Scandal. Now, it's worth reflecting on the fact that she does have this terrible uh, reputation, infamously dubbed the She-Wolf of France yeah. by William Shakespeare. Uh, Yorkist propaganda criticised her as a woman trying to do a man's job, i.e. kinging. Mm -hmm. um, she'd been rejected as regent. Many would have seen her extensive power and authority as transgressive and out of sync with how the world was supposed to work. Mm -hmm. 
the historian Helen Moore has argued that Margaret was actually trying to keep within uh, gender norms. So she's always cloaking her authority in that of her husband or her son. So she presents herself as sort of an intermediary for them rather than a force in yeah. her own right. But Yorkist propaganda is very successful and her increased power just serves to feed the myth even more. Yeah, so their defence is, but look, she's a woman. But yeah. everyone can see that. Okay. I was like, I don't know, but this is true. Yeah, but look, she's still doing it. She's <laughs> <laughs> still... Oh, she refuses to stop being a woman. She's womaning even more now. Yeah. People did obviously genuinely fear her. So as you saw in London, refused to open the door because of these tales of this rampaging barbarian army. Um, but there's also in the Troy's aftermath of the Battle of Wakefield. Her men came to the place where the dead corpse of the Duke of York lay and caused his head to be stricken off and set on it a crown of paper and so fixed it on a pole and presented it to the Queen. Uh, Shakespeare took this even further by having Margaret personally kill York on the battlefield. What? Because um, in reality she was actually in Scotland at the time so she wasn't there at all. Um, and yet, clearly, this did speak to how contemporaries viewed Margaret. So mm. even though, obviously, some, a lot of this is propaganda, it is obviously forming, and it's all part of an image, which is how she is seen at the time. She is seen as this sort of mm. great and terrible woman. And why is that? Is it, it's all, I mean, the answer is always to lend the Tudors legitimacy. Well, the thing is saying the Tudors, but it's, it's, this is all actually, this is Yorkist propaganda. This is contemporary. This isn't the Tudors later rewriting history. This is what, like, Warwick... Oh, right. About but, her at the time. Yeah. She's also plagued by rumours of adultery. Oh, that's just so standard, isn't Again, it? Again, she's a woman in power, yeah. so. Uh, in the 1440s, there were rumours of an affair with the Duke of Suffolk, so he was the one that arranged her marriage to Henry VI. Yeah. Hall's Chronicle described him as the Queen's darling. Mm. Now, whilst unlikely that they actually had an affair, perhaps showed her political naivety at the time that she was obviously close enough to him and publicly associated mm. enough with him that that sort of rumour would, mm, would be able to up. form. Yeah. Um, and of course, obviously, it doesn't top Shakespeare turning it into a full-blown affair. So in, uh, <laughs> in uh, Henry VI Part Two, I think it is, she's mournfully carrying his severed head around. Gosh. Mm -hmm. Oh dear, that's horrid. <laughs> Uh, and the rumours took on a more sinister edge when it was suggested that Suffolk had convinced Margaret to ask, then cajole, then beg the king to arrest Suffolk's rival, the Duke of Gloucester, soon after which the Duke of Gloucester died. So this is Henry VI's last uncle, Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, yeah. who was sort of the regent and had been the dominant force. So he was arrested sort of for treason and then died is that long true? afterwards. Well, it, that, it's true it that that happen. happened. Yeah, He may probably literally just died he might have had a heart attack they or stroke that, yeah. or something very unlikely at this point when she's you know what 15 16 that she's got the influence to have someone of gloucester's status arrested for treason right yeah of course however the main scandal associated with margaret was around the parentage of her son prince edward because mm. this comes after eight years of childless marriage to an unworldly and distinctly unsexual king mm. so for then suddenly a son and heir to be born for some people, particularly in the context, obviously, of Henry VI's uh, illness, for some people thought maybe a little bit convenient. Well, it is, but is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, so the London Chronicle at the time reported that people spoke strangely about the birth and an apprentice was hanged, drawn and quartered for producing a bill asserting that the prince was a changeling. 
Oh, gosh. Poor guy. Uh, there were also rumours later that the prince was a bastard conceived in adultery. So there's a suggestion that perhaps Margaret, you know, as Queen Consort, if her position relies on producing a son and heir, if Henry VI isn't able to do the job, mm. maybe she went looking for a surrogate. Any... any... Well, so the, the main chap that is often suggested is the second Duke of Somerset, yeah. Edmund Beaufort, who was the sort of the chief minister at the time. Yeah. And uh, obviously we saw from Catherine de Valois' episode, he's got form with uh, seducing French, yeah. <laughs> English queen right. consorts. Um, he would have been quite a lot older than her at the time, though, so another alternative would have been his 17-year-old son, who later became the third Duke of Somerset. There were uh, and realistic uh, and also never marry so if you're sort of looking for a kind of a romantic angle of that you know because these are all good suggestions because they're also all Lancastrians so they're fairly as mm. close as she can get in terms of a male yeah bloodline to Henry the sixth yeah like, it's not just any old person it's okay so the rudimentary checks like same colour hair sort of looks the same <laughs> yeah pass. Uh, the historian Bonita Cron has speculated that another possibility that doesn't often get heralded is Edmund Tudor so not a full-blooded proper Lancastrian but Henry's half-brother and of French royal stock because his mother was Catherine of Valois mm. um, same age as Margaret and uh, she welcomed him to Greenwich during the festivities at which the prince may well have been conceived based on the uh, timescales which do you think? Which one's the answer? Uh, probably not. Probably the kings. Probably the kings. Right. People do sometimes take a while yeah. to have children. It's just obviously with all of the conflict that later comes and everything, that the timing and the delay mm. and everything, it you can see how that could then easily be construed into seeming a bit suspicious. Because it's a phenomenal risk <laughs> to take Isn't it? on her yeah. part. Um, but, of course, speculation is encouraged by the fact that the prince was born when Henry was in his catatonic state and wasn't able to acknowledge him as his son. Yes, that's true, yeah. And they did try, and if anything, the fact that they tried maybe made it worse. So there's an account of this. The Duke of Buckingham took him in his arms, him being the, the prince... The Duke of Buckingham took him in his arms and presented him to the king in goodly ways, beseeching the king to bless him, and the king gave no answer. Nevertheless, the Duke abode still with the prince by the king, and when he could no manner answer have, the queen came in and took the prince in her arms and presented him in like form as the duke had done, desiring that he should bless it. But all their labour was in vain, for they departed thence without any answer or countenance, saving only that once he looked on the prince and cast his eyes down even without any more. Is that contemporary, someone who was there? Mm. So, implication being that he knows that this is a changeling? Well, I mean, the reality, of course, is that they could have said and done absolutely anything and they would have got no response to him because he was completely unable to respond to Mm. anything that was going on around him. He didn't know who anybody was, what was going on. He couldn't. But propaganda and rumours etc the fact that the king wasn't able to acknowledge his son made it very easy to turn that into rumours mm. and when he does first meet his son Corpus Mentis he was alleged to have been confused about where the child had come from uh, declaring that he must be the son of the Holy Spirit and Margaret if, it, if this is the case Margaret's going oh that's about the worst <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm. you remember that Night under the apple tree blossom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that come from. Um, uh, 
It's ideal, isn't it, though, if you were to ever do a changeling? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, you know, these things happen, don't they? Like, mm. Mm. Um, but, of course, Margaret is subject to extensive Yorkist propaganda on this subject, and Warwick in particular is highly effective in the art of propaganda. You know, several centuries before William III invented it. Inventing, uh, yeah. Uh, so he stated uh, that Margaret ruled the country with those who defile the king's chamber. Oh. Um, and at one point he claimed the prince was fathered by a wandering player. <laughs> Different meaning, same result. Uh, loot, presumably, mm. or there, thereabouts. Um, as it happened, the rumours kind of changed over time depending on the message they wanted to convey. So initially it was a changeling because that shows Margaret's not a proper mother, ergo mm. not really a proper queen with authority. But later on, it's a bastard, because then they need to show that the prince isn't a proper prince. Oh, I see, She's yeah. not a proper queen and whatnot. Yeah. And, of course, the fact that Warwick, in 1470, is perfectly happy to marry his daughter to this child that he's been claiming is oh, yeah. illegitimate suggests that either he's fully aware that he's just making all of this up or he's sh- so shameless that he doesn't really care where the child's come from if it's what's going to get him power. I, well, I think both are really yeah. likely. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of these tricky ones with a scandal, which you often see with the consults, where we've got quite a lot of stuff there, quite a lot of rumours, and yet, if it's all just propaganda, how much actual scandal does Margaret get given? I don't think that, I, mean, I don't think any of it's true on reflection. Mm. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, with the the Prince Edward, where yeah. it's it's of all the times that we have rumours about queens and illegitimacy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, a... It's it sounds less unbelievable than others. Yeah, yeah, and if if a hole in that argument is that it requires uh, Warwick to be. <laughs> power grabbing and shameless yeah. then fine um, but I've done, I don't, I'm reluctant to give it points because it's like I'm saying that's definitely true and I guess you know when we spoke to uh, Dr Emma Southern in the first episode of the series and we asked her about you know mm. what do we do about scandalous rumours and she was saying well I think still still sort of give credit for some of that because it shows that they're making enemies and they're Mm. You know, the fact that people are writing nasty stuff about them shows that they're doing something that they don't like. So, you know, we do still have this sense of her as being transgressive for what is expected of a woman. The fact that she is powerful. We still have the fact that there was genuine fear of her. The Londoners don't want to open the gates to her, all this sort of stuff. The reputation isn't just later. There is a sort of contemporary fear of her. And you can say, well, that's all just propaganda. But equally must be something. Yeah, she something can't there. have been completely placid and mild and wouldn't say boo to a goose, and everyone believes it. Yeah, but she's acting like a king, mm. and it wouldn't be out of character for a king. There's like a, a threshold that I have to go above, mm. and I think she's probably just about at the threshold for a normal king. You want a decent level of fear. Mm. But the fact that she's not a king, she's a queen, mm. so is that scandalous enough to warrant scandal, mm. being of the zero baseline for a king well i guess if it's scandalous at the time or i guess if it's an issue at the time i mean so these mm. are contemporary rumors i suppose that's the thing yeah 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 i mean it's pretty scandalous then on that well yeah i mean if you accept it's all true then it's incredibly scandalous. <laughs> or, or, or the, but the whole situation of a of a woman my lord mm. so either either i uh, so i feel like if i'm giving points for that i'm 
I'm going along with it. It's the fact that it's scandalous that it's a woman, but it is scandalous that she's a woman. Oh, Graham, I don't know. What's the answer? You absolutely definitely don't think that she had uh, an affair with somebody to produce the sun, and if don't think that she had any bloodthirstiness. I mean, there must be there must be something, at least in the striking fear into her enemies bit. Like, you know, you think of when she got her son to decide what to do with the... Oh, yeah. Lancastrian defectors, and then he said they should have their heads cut off, whereas Henry VI would have just let them off. Yeah. That's her bringing up her son to be a killer on the battlefield, and she's like, right, the boy will decide. That is some proper medieval parenting skills, isn't it? And that maybe that gives you an insight into the character and how she is, how the army was, because that's part of this march south that yeah. makes the Londoners scared. You, it was quite shocking how you phrased that. She's bringing up a killer. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, is, 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 is the right. job. But it's these flashes of insights into things. of What, what mothering means to the medieval <laughs> queen it means <laughs> teaching him to lust blood and cut heads off. Mm. It is big, isn't it? She is the Wars of the Roses. She's, if it weren't for her, there would be no war. Equally, she is the queen consort and she's the mother of the son of the king. So... Really, you could say it's everybody else is the problem. She's just trying to uphold what should just be the standard. Yeah, what we do. Yeah, but she's a woman and should just back down in the face of the sensible men. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but the trouble is, she did seem to make so much sense. All her arguments appeared yeah. reasonable. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? She's just a woman, and that is un. You can't get over the fact. That it's a boy without a winkle. There's a lot of detail I've given you there when I could have just said she was a woman. Yeah, so. and that's it. And that's already... She's at five already, so five. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sort of want to go with five as well. I do think she needs it. I do think there's something there in terms of the fear factor and mm. how London is perceived and all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot going on in there which you feel like, mm, there's enough of a question mark here and there, but yeah. I suspect the worst of it isn't true. Yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, five from you, five from me. 10 for scandal. Subjectivity. With everything that's going on, you might think there wasn't time for any actual normal traditional queenship. Um, however, she did have a good sort of 10 years of being queen before the Wars of the Roses really kicked off, and prior to Henry's illness, she was thoroughly conventional consort. Mm. Uh, so she's genuinely pious, you'll be glad to hear. Oh, this is all going to be that period, isn't it? Made numerous pilgrimages to Beckett's Shrine and uh, also went to the Holy House of Nazareth in Walsingham. Uh, which is a popular choice for maternal pilgrimages, uh, donating a magnificent gold plaque. Uh, in exile, apparently she had to write to the Pope for permission to ease off on the fasting that she'd been enduring in hope of God's grace. Uh, she shared Henry's interest in education and uh, emulated his foundation of King's College, Cambridge, with the appropriately named Queen's College, Cambridge. Ah, good. Good stuff. Uh, prior to Henry's illness, she also did fulfil the traditional queenly role of being a merciful intercessor, most notably in Cage Rebellion, when the royal pardon to the rebels was given by the most humble and persistent supplication to prayers and requests of our most serene and beloved wife and consort, the Queen. Is that true? Hmm. Oh. Uh, also showed her courage, of course, the fact that she remained in London while Henry mm. fled to Kenilworth. Uh, and she was an exemplar of good ladyship. So in other words, providing favour, protection, or just generally advancing the interests of various lesser persons. Mm. Generally those in her service, but always. Uh, so this has shown the loyalty of her followers. So despite all the adversity that being her follower involved, various lords and servants, top to bottom, stick with her throughout. Many of them give their lives yeah. on the battlefield in her cause. So clearly able to inspire great loyalty, even when her cause must have seemed lost. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, you've got to say, she had a pretty tough gig 
It was Queen of England. Um, you know, England experienced bad kings and minorities before, but they never had an adult heir who was mentally incapable of ruling. Mm. Sort of aside from, I guess, Edward III and his dotage, but, you know, he had son, adult sons mm. and stuff. Margaret was effectively forced to be a queen regnant, which inevitably resulted in criticisms of her as a woman in power, but it was the only way that she could protect her husband and her son. Yeah. And all of this on the back of the m- massive reverses in mm. France. And what's more, she does seem to have been pretty good at the kinging business. She utilised leaves of power from 1456 to improve her position, so strengthened her bonds with supportive uh, lords through strategic marriage alliances, established control over government by replacing Yorkist appointments with her own supporters in key roles such as the Chancellor, Treasurer uh, and Keeper of the Privy Seal. And that was complemented by the establishment of the Prince's Council, so an alternative source of royal authority to the Kings in case of another regency. So this is the Prince of Wales, this council, I, her son. And this is filled with Lancastrians who are tasked with acting only with the approval and agreement of our best beloved consort, the Queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at a more local level, she combined the Principality estate, so Wales, southwestern, uh, west of England, with her own estate in the Midlands. So she creates this sort of red pale this power base of her own that means yeah. that she can rival york and his yeah. allies because so that so like she's a a landowning lord in her own right mm. hmm. so she and, and her hat is therefore in the ring not just as a consort but as a noble as well mm. she owns those, yeah. yeah she combines well with her son's authority to thus give her a bigger mm. power block and security Mm. So she's pretty good at doing this sort of stuff. If she'd just been left to govern, yeah, I suspect she could have done a good job of it. Uh, but she wasn't, and it's not necessarily a glowing success in terms of subjectivity this period. No. Um, despite England's dilapidated finances uh, following decades of war, Margaret had the largest and most lavish household of any English queen up to this point. Really? So in 1451 to 52, her total household expenditure was over £7,000 which is over £4 million today. Um, significantly more than her predecessors, but more significantly double that of her successor, Elizabeth Woodville. Wow. Now, in fairness, some of this was unavoidable. Royal apartments needed refurbishing, because we haven't had a queen for 20-odd mm. years. Money from her estates and queen's gold wasn't readily forthcoming, so she had to you know, work hard to actually get lots of the money owed. But, of course, none of this helps foster early popularity when she's chasing bills and mm. whatnot. And indeed, she is not a popular queen, I have to acknowledge. She'd been greeted with great acclaim when she first came to England, but of course the promises of peace and a new beginning quickly turned sour. Mm. Later propaganda will blame her for the loss of Maine. Uh, She's painted as a French agent at court, and indeed she did write letters to Charles VII of France, pledging to do what she could to be of assistance to him. What's her relation to him? Niece, all sort of niece-in-law, technically. But, I mean, again, she's a newly arrived teenager, doubtful whether she actually has any influence over government policy at this point. Um, Her association with the commanders who led French losses, so Suffolk and then later Somerset, means that she further comes to symbolise defeat and surrender. So she's the one who was meant to bring peace, and yet we lose all our lands, and she's an ally of the men that led Mm. all of this. I can see see in that light. Mm. Looks bad. Yeah. And the fact that she relied on the French king to help her in her efforts to reclaim the throne, of course, does nothing to aid her reputation when the Yorkists are painting her as, you know, the downfall of English success and the French agent at court and mm. all this sort of thing. Mm. The fact that it's then French soldiers that she's using to try and reclaim the throne, it all 
Yeah. It's quite easy for the Yorkists to paint her as the outsider. Yeah. And them as the... Uh, yeah, what part of this is not the French taking over? Yeah. Uh, the French writer Christine de Pizan wrote an instructive book on how women of various social stations could be virtuous, and queens were supposed to be natural mediators between a king and his subjects. So Margaret's role as a leader of one of the two factions in the Wars of the Roses goes against all expectations of what the queen's role is meant to be. Uh, the French diplomat Philippe de Comines attributed the Wars of the Roses uh, to Margaret's failure to adhere to these expectations mm. of queenship. As it turned out, that lady would have done much better if she had acted as a judge or mediator between the two parties, instead of saying, I will support this party, for there were many battles as a result, and in the end, almost everyone on both sides was killed. She couldn't, though, because uh, York was determined that she was a Somerset person. Yeah, it's tricky. It's one of those ways it escalates is the problem. Yeah. And you think, well, could she have tried for longer to placate York, could she have done more to try and be that neutral person? That it, may, if either brought York on side or kept enough of the other nobles on side that York remains sort of on the outside. Yeah, because it's not appeasement in like Munich, mm. in that he, York at this point doesn't to be it doesn't appear to be uh, totally insane like Hitler, <laughs> yeah, and and was not after the office of king. Mm. So impossible, isn't it? It's tricky because it's one of those. Well, on the one hand, this is a totally legitimate criticism you can make of Margaret, but obviously you could say the same thing about York. Mm, yeah, true. Um, but in reality, so there's no evidence of any conflict between Margaret and York before 1454. One of York's biographers even argued that she was, if anything, sympathetic to York early on because she'd known him for a long time. It was York who welcomed her into Rouen when she was on her way to England. Oh. So she, York, weirdly, is one of the first friendly English faces. Where did it go wrong then? She'll have met. Well, I was saying, you know, her wife, uh, his sorry, his wife attended Margaret in her illness when she was on her travels to England and both uh, received generous gifts from Margaret from that point up till 1453. And when, as we said, she tactfully gave York and Somerset gifts of the same value. So it was it was Henry VI giving Somerset too much power in, in York's eyes? It does seem to be more, it was Henry more than um, Somerset. So although Margaret does show some favour to Somerset, it's nowhere near the same level as what Henry does. And why does Henry do that again? He's their old friend. Yeah, he seems to have liked him from yeah. childhood and also they are both of that Lancastrian mm. sort of gaunt descent. Um, but so she does try to be neutral and unifying. She said, Margaret's, as she said, York's wife appealed to Margaret for her to intercede with Henry on York's behalf yeah. in 1453. Might have been Margaret that told Somerset that, you know, York should be on that great council. Mm, seems likely. Um, Margaret's bid for the regency in 1454 is often depicted as her being power hungry, but also it could have let her restore balance and avoid the escalation that followed. Hmm. I mean, they're all for each one. There's a as a equal and opposite. It mm. seems. Well, yeah. So others would argue that Margaret's continued resistance to York is what ultimately prolongs and exacerbates the conflict. So, York had acknowledged in his first protectorate that Prince Edward was, you know, the heir and Prince of Wales. Um, he hasn't at that point endured a decade out of favour while his ra- while his rivals all seem to fail upwards. Mm. Um, and understandably, he wants to maintain his position in power. So if Margaret had acquiesced in York's position after 1455, even though obviously York does cross a line with the first Battle of St. Albans when he killed the Duke of Somerset and attacked the royal standard, but equally, maybe if everyone had just sort of accepted that fait accompli and 
continued, maybe that would have been enough. So in uh, February 1456, Bennett's Chronicle stated that York and Warwick received a most gracious welcome from the king. However, the queen greatly loathed them both. Well, because they've been naughty boys, and he can't, he's not going to say that, so it's up to her to scowl. But equally, there's also a sense that left to Henry, he would have just sort of let them boss him around. And on the one hand, that's a bad thing, but on the other hand, maybe if Margaret hadn't been there to keep on pushing against them, it wouldn't have then needed to go to the next level. Yeah, one of them would have killed the other, Mm. and her son would have been king. Mm. Or they would have just had a long period of Henry being underfoot, and then Prince Edward would have... Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like the, on one of them would have won that mm. power struggle, yeah. So Sir John Bocking corroborate, uh, corroborated this the same month. Uh, the king, so it was told me by a great man, would have York as his chief and principal counsellor. The queen is a great and strong-laboured woman, for she spares no pains to pursue her objectives towards an end and conclusion favourable to her power. Hmm. Now, this didn't have to lead to war, and from 1456 to 59, it seems that she was trying to nullify York's power rather than destroy him. So that's when we have all of those changes in government appointments and strategic marriages. She's not trying to kill him. She's just trying to, you know, knock him down a peg or two. Yeah, yeah. Um, And there was carrot as well as stick. He was compensated for the loss of Welsh castles, appointed to commissions of array, while his allies received or retained certain positions. Mm. So it wasn't all bad, but particularly from 1459 when she insisted that York and his allies be attainted for treason after they fled into exile. There's no coming back from that. There's no coming back. Now again, from her perspective, York and his allies have again raised an army against the royal standard. Mm. So you think, well, you know, how many times does he have to do this before I'm allowed to say that this is treason? Yeah. Clearly it is. And yet at the same time... It's real politic. Yeah, you feel like maybe you just had to find a a peaceful Mm. settlement. Mm-hmm and it might not have needed to keep on escalating. Uh, but once you've done that, there's nowhere to go but all out war. Yeah. Mm. Um, but so we might, again, we think we said with the international diplomacy, a certain lack of political subtlety. As mm. you said, that realpolitik, maybe Margaret, all spirit and commitment, but... But there was none coming from Henry. But I guess maybe if Margaret had had a bit more political nuance, maybe she would have been able to manage... Yeah, yeah, yeah. With all of these things, it feels like we could point to the Duke of York and say a lot of it as well. On the one hand, it's kind of a sexist argument, but also they sort of looked to queens to be the intercessor and to be the mediator. Yeah. She's I'd not free from like blame. Mm. I guess oh, no, definitely it. not. And in the, I would have said, yes, but she's taking the role that Henry should have done. Mm. But in doing that, that is the problem. Mm. Well, that's tricky to score then. Mm. It's six one half and dozen the other another five. Yeah, I think I might go below a five because although I guess there's one debate which is who is to blame, York or Margaret. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're going to say it's kind of both of them, that's still saying you're partly responsible for this terrible <laughs> period of yeah. history with divisions, which is a I'd say more negative than positive. Oh, so scoring down for that? Yeah. yeah so of rather course. than giving York five and Margaret five. And say, well, I'm going to adopt both of you points. I see. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. So I'd say in her favour, we've got the fact that actually when she is able to do the kinging business, she does govern well. She is mm. able to administrate the kingdom effectively. And prior to Henry's illness, she was doing you know pretty much all the things you'd expect a good queen consort to do. But once that Rubicon has been crossed, 
felt like she jumped across it as well. Well, I'm going to give a. I'm going to stick to five, but know that your more subtle uh, scoring system is probably better. But likely, <laughs> she gets a nine. Uh, I'm going to come a bit lower than you expected. I'm going to go down to a three. Really? Mm. Oh, I thought you were going to do four. Well, okay then. Uh, yeah, I'm sticking with five. <laughs> <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh. You definitely wouldn't want to be her subject, right? Oh, this is the bit we've just done. <laughs> okay, you know. Oh, hang, subjectivity. <laughs> right, hang on. Let me. Okay. Um, let me recenter. Let me, I'll give it a five. <laughs> <laughs> so that is an eight for subjectivity. Still feels wrong. Longevity. She's Queen Consort from the 23rd of April, 1445, to the 4th of March, 1461, which is 15.83 years. Yeah. She is Queen Consort from the 3rd of October, 1470, oh, yeah. to the 11th of April, 1471, mm. when Henry is restored, which is uh, 0.5 years. Okay. So we add those two 0. together. 0.5? Mm. Uh, so that was a little one? Yeah. Okay. So that's a total of 16.33 years. It's not as long as I thought. Well, mm. maybe it's about right. It's because she had 10 years off. 10 years off, Yeah. Mm. Uh, which gives her a total of 10 out of 20 for longevity. Average. Mm, 29th overall. Dynasty, not the program. This is going to seem very harsh. What? Oh, yeah. But it's got to be a zero. Yeah. Because from 1453 to 1471, everything she does is to protect her son and his dynastic interests. Yeah. But with his death at Tewkesbury, before the death of Henry VI... That means Margaret and Henry did not have any legitimate surviving children when Henry VI died. Even though he was 17, wasn't he? Even though he was 17, even though it was like a oh, few days devastating. before. Nevertheless, by uh, our strict rules, she doesn't get oh, that a dynasty score, which does feel like rubbing salt into the wound somewhat. Uh, so that is a zero for dynasty for Margaret of Anjou which means she has a total score of 47.5. What's that? Doesn't sound very good. So that will put her 13th out of the 33 that we've done thus far. Anyway, it's not all about the score, of course. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement and star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Well, we've got pretty obvious reasons in her favour. Yeah. Remarkable tenacity, virtual rule of the country indefatigable, courageous in defence of her son, one of the most remarkable and uh, dramatic lives in English royal history. If we're to consider the opposing argument, yeah, it's basically is that she loses, and loses badly. Okay, well, if it's just that... <laughs> and I guess you could say, you know, she does basically twice snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, so it's not just that she loses, but that she makes errors at both moments. Yeah. But she's, she's not a striker. She's a creative midfielder, doesn't have that finishing quality, perhaps. Like less than eating Vardy back. Mm. It's remarkable. Um, <laughs> remarkable remarkable. parallels. <laughs> yeah. Incredible banter we have. Um, what was my point? Uh, that she was being, she lost in a job that she wasn't oh, yeah, doing yeah. in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Oh, we just, it's Rex Factor, isn't it? <laughs> She's got to have the Rex Factor. Well, it's an interesting one because I'm thinking like we've, we've almost never given it to people who get, who do suffer all-out defeat, ultimately. Yeah. I'd say the only real example we've had is Mary, Queen of Scots. I think she's the only other one who's well, sort of life similar. ended. But I'd say that Margaret is probably more successful along the way. It's so Rexy. I, she may lose, but it's Rexy. 
It's really Rexy. I mean, I it's more Rexy than some Rex Factor winners. It is. I mean, the the way that she keeps on going yeah. as well, and the fact that 10 years after being defeated, mm. they do actually come back. And yeah. Back on the throne. It's that tenacity that I really love. And the, and the day that she discovers, that she lands, discovers that her, like, all is effectively lost. But whilst there's still hope... Still she's going to try, yeah. And even like with her international diplomacy, where it showed the lack of real politique that she's making these frankly ludicrous approaches. Well, she can, yeah. But yeah. I equally do admire the fact that yeah. she's trying everything. Yeah, because one of those might come off. They're at Tewkesbury, about to win. It's like, what? Who's flag? Is that the King of Albania? <laughs> <laughs> Got the letter. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is desperate. Yeah, you're sort of calling. I get in Plymouth, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she. I mean, it's it's an incredible life story. It does end in defeat, but I think it's. I mean, it's just sad that it's it it plays out like lame as are, but ah, mm. oh, destitute and and where is it she dies? Oh, in sort of in Anjou. Well, at least that's nice. Because I was gonna say, if you're gonna be destitute, but. You might as well do it on the, in the south of France. <laughs> if I had to be destitute anywhere, I'd choose. Uh, yeah, I would. Somewhere where I wouldn't have to worry quite so much about trench foot. I mean, where would you... If you had to live outside, if you were to become a deer or something... No, I mean like a human. <laughs> but like a, if you become like a human deer. <laughs> yeah, a human deer. Who's exiled. Without a home. Yes. And they, they still are fond of just like sitting down in the woods which isn't as good as a house. Mm. So so on that basis... That's a clear Rex Factor winner. And it's a yes for me as well. Margaret of Anjou has got the Rex Factor. Oh, oh, I just wish she knew. Mm. She wouldn't give two hoots, would she? <laughs> Correspondence Corner. So that is it for Margaret of Anjou. She does have the Rex Factor. Let us know what you thought about her. We're going to do a Rise of Reply episode for the Lancastrian Queens in a couple of weeks. So uh, send in any comments or questions, etc., that you have about uh, all of these. That's Joan of Navarre, Catherine of Valois, and Margaret of Anjou. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like and uh, join in the discussions on the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And uh, remember to send in your hashtag consult cards for an episode image of Margaret. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get over 100 bonus episodes at www.patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. 100. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Vida Jane, Niblick Third, Vanessa Murray, Joseph Noah, Heather, High Meow Lady of the Cult of Cricket. <laughs> Anise Anderson, Tracer Muir, John Nichols, Maria Bach, Georgia, W.J. Hayes, Karen Form, Erica Kane, Gregory Noonan, Emma Casley, C. Payson Usher, Ruth Lofthouse, Eve Jeffrey Wilson, Pierre Alban, Andy Ball, Kate Burfield, Alison Scrace, Inna Jordans, Rob Dawson, and Catherine Yarwood. Yay! Welcome, one and all. Hello. Hi. You get one free drink at the bar. <laughs> so that's all from us and uh, Margaret of Anjou, and that's also the end of our uh, Lancastrian miniseries. Uh, there'll be another little pause while I have a research break to uh, prepare for the Yorkist Queens. That doesn't mean a lack of episodes. So as to say, there's that right to reply episode. Uh, we've got an interview with the historian Tom Holland. 
Oh, yeah. And next time we'll be speaking to Scottish Ballet. But anyway, for now, until we are back with Elizabeth Woodville, we shall say goodbye. Cheerio!